Welcome to East Lansing Crime Warp, a podcast hosted by myself, Hannah Brock, and my co-host, Maddie Monroe. Each week, we'll update you on current crime, and then we'll take you back to a crime blast from the past. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned. So before we jump into our sixth episode of East Lansing Crime Warp, we want to let you guys know that this will be our last episode for this semester. We plan to come back next semester with more stories for you, COVID and life willing, but we just want to thank you for your support in this semester. This week, we're covering the 2005 case of a missing child, but before we get into it, we have a few current crime-related updates. So, Hannah, you reported on some low COVID numbers in Ingham County Jail this past week. What can you tell me about that? So, even though there had recently been a COVID-19 spike in Ingham County when I originally wrote this, the numbers of COVID in the jail were actually extremely low. So, they only had two inmates that had tested positive for COVID-19, but they knew that before they went in, and they were immediately put into quarantine and showing very few symptoms. And another thing that they kind of did to keep COVID-19 numbers down inside of the jail was reducing how many inmates they had. So that was done, according to Sheriff Scott Rigglesworth, by the courts. So the courts could decide if they wanted to forgive a few days on someone's sentence, or some of the inmates had just had their sentence go up. And that's why they were released. So they reduced their population from 300 to 266 by November 28th. And they also teamed up with the county health department to make sure that they were meeting all of the guidelines, cleaning well, testing, doing all of those things. And the inmates were only allowed to go into general population if, for one, their type of sentence allowed that, and two, if they were definitely testing negative for COVID-19. So that was kind of how they kept the, the numbers low. Could you also talk about the armed protesters at the Secretary of State's house this past week? Yeah, so that happened on Saturday night, and Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson said at the time she was decorating her home for Christmas and watching movies with her four-year-old son. And then she realized that there was actually a crowd outside of her house, and they were armed, yelling, and it seemed to be after dark. And this incident was kind of an extension of what we've been seeing of a lot of election controversy. You know, there hasn't really been any evidence that there's been election fraud, but that's still being brought to the forefront of the public eye, causing protests, causing intimidation such as this. At Governor Gretchen Whitmer's COVID-19 update on Monday, she actually discussed this intimidation. This has been happening to other political officials as well. And she was basically just saying that this is completely unacceptable and that there are other ways that you can go about airing your grievances that do not include showing up to someone's private residence and yelling at them and making them feel intimidated. So that's pretty much what happened with that. Could you also talk a little bit about Attorney General Dana Nessel's response to the lawsuit in Texas? Yeah, so the Attorney General in Texas Ken Paxton, listed Michigan as one of four states in a lawsuit alleging state and federal election requirement violations. So this was executed on Monday and also lists Michigan, Georgia, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. 
So basically, Paxton was alleging that those states and their officials had used COVID-19 as a justification for amending some election things that they shouldn't have. And Dana Nessel responded and basically said that it was a publicity stunt and actually had no legal bearing. She also said that these election concerns have already been aired out and denied by state and federal judges of both parties. So she was basically just saying that this was some sort of publicity type thing. I mean, we've seen with Donald Trump filing a lawsuit in Michigan, that was denied. Protests are continuing. Public officials are being intimidated. So it kind of represents how tumultuous this presidential election has been and a lot of the controversy surrounding voting. The Senate right now is actually reviewing the election process, trying to make the public understand how it works just so they can, you know, ensure that the public is not confused and make sure that Michigan was actually executing and counting the votes in the right way. And Rudy Giuliani, President Trump's attorney, actually came and he was confined in that conference room space for a very long time without a mask. And just days later, it was found that he was positive for COVID-19. So a lot of people were also told to kind of get themselves checked out. So honestly, I mean, just the election, COVID, all of this is just kind of an, an insane time right now, a really big part of the entire world's history and I mean that's coming out in several 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 different ways. So yeah the lawsuit involving the Texas Attorney General is just one part of this election controversy going on right now. Alrighty thank you for listening to this week's crime updates. Now it's time for the crime blast from the past. Before we begin we want to let our listeners know that this episode contains graphic content involving a minor. On July 2, 2005, Tim Holland frantically called 911 to report that his seven-year-old son, Ricky Holland, was missing. Tim and his wife, Lisa, adopted Ricky and three of his four siblings through the state foster care system. They lived in Williamson at the time Ricky went missing. Community members, police officers with search dogs, dive teams, mounted units, and two Civil Air Patrol helicopters started to search for Ricky the day after he was reported missing. The search started in their neighborhood on Douglas Road and then ran along Red Cedar Road and Hitchcock Farm, which became the base for the search party. There were so many volunteers that the Red Cross set up tents with food and water to assist the search party. One search party member, Alexis Cutshaw, was only nine years old at the time of his disappearance and became a resource for police officers. They asked her questions like where would she go and hide to try and figure out where Ricky could have run off to. But after three days of searching, doubt for Ricky's safe return began to grow. Community members grew suspicious of the Holland family, including their neighbors, Jim and Jackie Wheeler. The Hollands were unaware of the fact that Jim was a sergeant at the Ingham County Sheriff's Office and Jackie was a detective. The Wheelers first met Tim and Lisa Holland when the Sheriff's Office asked them to visit their home the day after Ricky was reported missing. Upon visiting the house, Jim said that Tim had a very visible limp. Tim said that this was because he sprained his ankle while looking for Ricky along the Red Cedar River. Jim also said that Lisa was screaming at her husband to get the kids ready to go out for breakfast. At that moment, Jim said he knew that this was not the mother of a child who was missing. This was not the only suspicious behavior from Lisa. Jackie Wheeler said that Lisa asked her if she could bring the kids over when all of this was over to see her animals. 
Jackie said the remark seemed cold to her as a police officer and a mother. It wouldn't be until half a year later that police caught a break in Ricky's missing status. In January of 2006, Tim Holland, Ricky's adoptive father, buckled under police pressure. Tim led police to a deserted ditch where Ricky's body had been hidden in a trash bag by his parents. Both parents accused each other of killing Ricky. Tim said Lisa had killed Ricky with two hammer blows to the head, but she maintained her innocence. Tim and Lisa's other three adopted children and biological child were placed with Tim's relatives after they were charged with murder. Tim fled the home with the children three days before he led police to Ricky's body. He filed a domestic abuse charge against Lisa that day. Tim and Lisa were officially arraigned on murder charges a month later. Prosecutors said they murdered Ricky on July 1st and reported him missing on the 2nd. The Hollands had also staged Ricky's room to make it look as if he ran away. The trial of Tim and Lisa would reveal tragic abuse and cause public outrage. A month after Tim had shown police where Ricky's body was, Ricky's remains were still held at Michigan State's forensics lab. His body could not be released for burial until legal issues were worked out. Several strangers reached out, offering to fund a funeral service. As an adopted child, his biological parents had no right to his body. A next of kin had to be determined. His body would remain in the lab for more than a year before a judge allowed two funerals for Ricky, one for Lisa's family and one for Tim's. The public was not allowed to come. Neighbors noted that Ricky had barged into their kitchens and ate food out of their fridges. He always begged them not to tell his mother that she wasn't feeding him and he didn't think she loved him very much. The Wheelers said he wasn't mischievous, he was starving. Upon analyzing Ricky's body, investigators found he had sustained a broken nose at some point prior to his death. They had also found his shoulder, collarbone, and jaw had been fractured. Ricky's abuse had been reported as early as 2002 when a complaint was made to the Child Protective Services about rope marks on his wrists. Ricky was believed to be tied to his bed at night. In 2002, Ricky would have been about four years old. Ricky was not immediately removed from the Hollands' home because of Michigan's Family First Act. This act focuses on keeping families together by providing services. The Hollands originally lived in Jackson, where school officials reported signs of abuse. The school said Lisa brought Ricky to school on a leash and packed carrot sandwiches for his lunch, even though he wouldn't eat them. He was also often bruised. The family then moved to Williamston and began homeschooling their children. Ricky's death led to several debates about homeschooling. There were also reports of abuse of his siblings. In December of 2005, a state worker asked Ricky's younger brother, Joseph, how he got bruises. He was four at the time. He said his adoptive mother, Lisa, had hit him with a spatula. His younger sister, Allison, the Holland's biological child, also had a black eye. She was only one. Ricky's case was so publicized, even the life of his birth mother was reported on. She became pregnant after his death. The Detroit News reported this caused a conundrum for social workers, as she had already lost Ricky and his three siblings to the state. She was unemployed, living in a motel, and married to a registered sex offender. The Detroit News ran a reader debate to let members of the public comment on if she should be able to keep the baby. Ricky's murder also prompted public outrage and criticism of social services. In the opinion column of the Detroit News, Greg Allen of Battle Creek wrote, quote, 
The death of Ricky Holland is the best example I have seen of the need for the death penalty in Michigan. While the state is at it, throw the state workers who allowed Ricky to stay in this situation into prison for a few years. Let them contemplate what they didn't do to save this boy." End quote. Lisa Holland was found guilty of Ricky's murder in October of 2006. She was set to serve life in prison. Tim Holland was sentenced for 30 to 60 years in prison for second-degree murder and testified against Lisa. Paula Manderfield, the judge on Ricky's case, said she was disturbed to hear the Hollands had held a funeral and buried their family dog while Ricky was missing. She recalled telling Lisa, quote, You buried your dog, but threw away your child, end quote. So overall, just a absolutely heart-wrenching case. Yeah, it really, Ricky really fell through the cracks, I think, during this, during his whole life, really. Nobody really reported the abuse that was going on in the Hollands' home. Well, they did, but what happened is they, they kept moving, they did homeschooling, they didn't allow the children to play outside. Right. And with this Family First Act, I mean, they had to concretely prove that these children were being completely abused. And in one of the articles that I read, they were talking about how it might be better for the child to stay with a slightly dysfunctional home than to stay with a home that they're completely unfamiliar with that's also dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think overall, you know, a lot of people did try to alert the police alert social services and somehow it it just didn't it didn't get stopped you know they found that he had died because he succumbed to some sort of head injury that she had inflicted on him so you know whether she killed him accidentally or on purpose it doesn't matter because she was horribly abusing these kids all of them even her biological kid right you know just just the total just the parents should have never been able to be foster parents. Right. They should have never had children of their own. You know, I just can't, I don't know, I just can't fathom this happening to an adult, let alone a child. Um, he was seven, which means he was probably born in about 1992. That's two years older than me. You know, he could have been in college by now. He could have been, you know, if he didn't want to go to college, you know, figuring out his life living out his dreams and instead he was thrown away in a ditch like trash and that is horrible the neighbors had also kind of suspected that this family was pretty messed up um you know even by the third day rumors were coming out you know about this family and people had already kind of given up on him and i know that the father got the lesser charge but i don't think that proves anything more innocent about him right yeah, I found it interesting that the Hollands were unaware unaware of the fact that their neighbors were a police sergeant and a detective. I wonder if any of this story would be different if they had known that. Yeah, because they probably wouldn't have talked to them. Right. Because she was very candid with that neighbor and was saying, when this is all over. Right. Like, shouldn't you be... Shouldn't you be hoping for your son to come back? Or at least pretending better. Right. Like, I just, I don't understand that at all. And they both blamed the murder on each other. They clearly worked on it together. 
and made it seem like he ran away. Um, another interesting part is that um, the girl, Alexis, she was nine at the time, and the police kind of, I wonder how they chose her, you right. know? Maybe she would just talked a lot yeah. or something, um, but they asked her a lot about what she might be able to move, where she might go, trying to just get into the, I guess, the mindset of a child. Um, another sad thing is where his remains were found, there's a cross, and it was originally so beautifully decorated, and a LSJ article from about five years ago shows it looking really dilapidated. Um, you know, that hurts. Yeah. You know, it's he- really hard. I also found it kind of inappropriate, though, that the Detroit News was asking the public to weigh in on if his birth mother should get to keep her baby. Yeah, I don't think that's really relevant to be in a newspaper. No, that's like a tabloid on this lady. Right. That's really messed up and really against your own some ethics. Right. Um, sorry, the Detroit News. I'm sure you are much better now. I hope. But that I just found that incredibly inappropriate. I would never do that to somebody. Yeah, no. I, I would not report on a birth mother getting to keep her child and allowing the public to weigh in and comment right like and these debate are, about it right like these aren't experts it's you know it's not a sensational it shouldn't be made into a sensational thing a child completely went through the cracks of our state's social services and died a horrible death he had sustained so many injuries prior to that he wasn't getting fed this child and all of his siblings were completely treated like worse than animals right. i mean they buried their dog they held a funeral for their dog they treated their dog better than these kids and then we're sensationalizing the birth mother and her being pregnant with another child right it's very inappropriate i mean and another thing i think this represents too is that when a child's life is lost um you know there's a lot more public outrage you know, he was little. And, you know, it brought up a lot of tensions for people. I mean, in the video that LSJ did about five years ago, all of the people who kind of helped search for him said they felt really, really, really guilty. And, you know, I mean, I would imagine that I would too. Yeah. Um, I think another thing to point out is that it could have been any of those children. I mean, this is a really heart-wrenching thing to say, but it could have been any of them. And it's it's just really sad that they had to lose Ricky in order for the Hollands to be exposed so they couldn't hurt those other children, too. Right. You know? I don't know. It's just a horribly, 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 horribly sad case. It is. It's very, very sad. I told Hannah that I didn't want to do this one. Yeah, I... Because it made me sad. Right, and this was before, you know, we kind of got into it, and I was talking about, well, you know, we've talked about cannibalism, we've talked about sexual assault, this podcast is about, you know, monsters around us, and I thought that this would just be uncovering another monster, but I didn't realize that it was going to be a whole entire group of kids who completely fell through the cracks of our social services, and who were honestly given the butt end of the stick in the most horrible and horrific way. So, I'm glad we did it because maybe some people will go and put some flowers on his 
cross or, you know, do something for him. Um, I don't think that he should die in vain. And I understand that this happened 10 years ago, but that's really not that long of time. Mm -hmm. Um, With our podcast about Bernita White, I mean, that's still an ongoing thing. It got put in a a group who's still trying to look for her um, murderer. And, you know, these... These people's lives still matter. They're still people, and hopefully this will inspire some people to maybe, you know, remember him in a good way. Um, Think about what this means, what this says about our social system, what this says about what we can do when we recognize kids are not being treated well. Um, Maybe search out ways you could help with that. I don't know what the proper response is, but I I hope it just garner some sort of emotional response. I mean, it definitely did for me. I know as reporters, we're not really supposed to be emotional beings, but this is a podcast. I'm not writing about this. I probably won't in the future. Um, and I, I can just honestly say that I, I, I'm going to be thinking about this for, for a bit. Yeah, I would agree with you on that. It definitely strikes a nerve, kind of punches you in, a, in the gut in a way with how just disturbing and heart-wrenching it is that it took Ricky being killed for anyone to notice what was really going on with the Holland family. Completely. Alrighty, so that concludes our sixth episode of East Lansing Crime Warp. Like we said in the beginning, this is our last episode of this semester. We really appreciate all of the support we've gotten, all of the listeners we've gotten, And we hope you'll join us back next semester when we start up again. Thank you so much and enjoy your winter break.